0: This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it.
1: The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in.
0: Yeah!
2: gentlemen, it's time again for something completely different. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program, where we teach you how to defend the Christian faith. We will give you the evidence that you can know for certain that Christianity is true. And we will also, during the course of the show, explain to you the benefits of the Christian faith for both personal happiness and human flourishing. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. Hi, I'm Kirk Hastings. And I'm Keith Kendricks. Keith, we had a great show last week. Yeah. And we've got something a little bit different on tap today. Yeah. Last week, we did a
1: debate. This is our second debate. This time, it was with two atheists from a competing podcast. They don't have a radio show, but they have a podcast. And apparently, they have a fairly large audience of atheist listeners and some theist listeners. And so we had a little dialogue with them that I think went very well. Mostly it went well because it was very polite and cordial. I don't think there was really a lot talked about as far as actual evidences presented for or against theism, but we did talk a little bit about a few sidetrack issues. And so we will I think what we're going to do today is kind of go over some of those sidetrack issues and talk about them and expand on them a little bit and Just kind of debrief the debate.
2: Yeah, this was actually our first time sparring with them. I don't know that it was actually a debate until maybe the last 10 minutes of the show. The initial part of the show was mostly finding out who we were, finding out what made each other tick, why they left the Mormon faith, why they were atheists. But the actual discussion really didn't get heavy until the very end, and we ran out of time. I had a number of friends that said it was more like a discussion than a debate, but they found it interesting nonetheless.
1: Well, we've got a couple of news items that I thought we'd go through first. We'll get through those, and then we'll get into the issues that came up during the debate. This is an email from a listener by the name of Tom. It's just about a paragraph, so I'll go ahead and read it. I adhere to a theory that I heard in the 1970s called vacuum genesis. We exist because of imperfection. Infinite nothingness has an extremely tiny imperfection called nuclear energy or atoms or matter, pick one, that always was. I make the analogy that it is equivalent to a speck of dust in the Houston Astrodome, except that it would be infinitely smaller. An ancient scientist, Democritus, I think, once stated that there are only two things that exist in the universe, atoms and opinions. I think he was right. Mystery solved case closed and that
2: is from Tom in Hawley, Pennsylvania. Well, I have a couple of comments about that Keith. I, I think we
0: it. can all go home, right? For,
2: first <laughs> an, yeah, well, first and foremost, vacuum genesis. Let's just look at the two words that he's using. Vacuum meaning the absence of anything, really. That's supposed a, to be. That's a pretty basic definition of vacuum. Mm-hmm. Genesis meaning the beginning of life or the beginning of something right so basically he's saying that something comes from nothing well we know better than that he's using a couple of greek terms or physical terms scientific terms to say that something comes from nothing right now i think that he's alluding to the first law of thermodynamics in that you know the amount of energy and matter in the universe remains constant and that they are interchangeable so he's alluding to that sort of indirectly in that in this vacuum, you can have particles, electrons, atoms, pr- photons, protons, I don't care what you're calling them. You've got actively engaged particles with energy force behind them. But to create life from nothing, uh, it's a stretch, yeah. a long stretch.
1: Yeah, this is supposed Without to be... Without God, it is. Right. This is supposed to be a theory about where the Big Bang came from. And, and actually, I think it was, I don't remember now who... Presented this vacuum genesis, but it came out in 1973. I do remember that. And it's the idea that the universe is something like a virtual particle and that these virtual particles appear out of a vacuum. But what they mean, what the physicists mean by vacuum, is not what we typically think of. They're not saying that virtual particles come out of nothing, they come out of an energy field. Well, an energy field is not nothing. So just because there are these virtual particles that can appear for a microsecond and have virtually no mass, they're extremely small mass. In fact, the more mass they have, the shorter the time period in which they can exist. Even though that might actually happen in an energy field, has nothing to do with whether the universe appeared out of nothing. You know, think of the mass of the universe. By that logic, it would be an infinitely small amount of time that it could exist for. So think the whole thing falls apart, and it's really kind of myth-building on the part of the atheists to
0: come up with a creation myth for themselves. Okay, now that we know where the dust particles in the Houston Astrodome came from, <laughs> right? I want to know where... Only it's completely different. It's I w- like that, only it's completely different. I want to know where the Houston Astrodome came from.
1: <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Who engineered it, right? <laughs> Engineering. Okay, so that was that. Now, a news <laughs> item, this came from Breakpoint, and it's From their December 13th issue, they refer to a New York Times article by Matt Richtel, and it's about what cell phones and computers do to young kids' brains. And the reason I thought it was appropriate is because several times we've talked about the developing brain and how you can affect how your soul can affect your brain, which proves the existence of the soul that they've discovered in PET scanners. And this says that the brains of kids can become more easily habituated than adult brains to constantly switching tasks and less able to sustain attention. So they essentially develop a need for stimulation. So it's warning that too much time online affects the ability of teens to recall their homework as an example. So researchers in Germany found that kids who play video games not only damage their ability to sleep well, they also affect their capacity to recall vocabulary words. So this really is an issue for for us as parents. We have to be careful and we shouldn't be spending a lot of time playing video games ourselves. Huh? What? Huh? <laughs> you, you know Keith, I'm... what's that word mean? <laughs>
2: video. I I'm forget. almost reminded of the studies that have come forth over the last 30 years about children watching too much television and how it hampers their yeah. their socialization skills and everything That's right. else. That's right. And I'll have to check this article out because I'm, I'm concerned that there's probably some frontal lobe problem mm-hmm. as far as development in a young child. Mm-hmm. Because these people also cannot interact in a positive way with society, friends, classmates, peers, because the only thing they know how to do is text or go online and they become part of this yeah. electronic medium.
1: Yeah, they, they say call. the result is distracted kids, low grades, and unimpressed college admissions staffs. But they do have, there's a, the article then takes a turn because it mentions a book, and I believe we talked about this book, titled The Anatomy of the Soul by Christian Psychiatrist Kurt Thompson. And it ends with good news, and that is that Dr. Thompson describes how the classic spiritual disciplines of prayer, meditation, fasting, confession, and study all foster the development of our minds. (laughs) They help us to encounter God to relate better to others and increase our attentiveness. So if you have been rewiring your brain in a bad way by playing a lot of video games and texting all day long, you can undo that through the Christian practices of prayer,
2: meditation, and scripture reading. So that's good news. So I think that the electronic media that are employed today with really the goal of selling something to our next generation is actually part of the dumbing down process that all of our kids and universities are starting to experience in a real way.
1: Right. We have to be careful. I mean, you know, we're not saying you can't play any video games or you can't watch television, but you should be careful about how much you do, you know. Don't do it 20 hours a day. Exactly. Every day. And I think the, I don't remember the statistics, but the average time of watching television for the average American is something like four hours. I mean, it's, That's virtually all the time that you're not sleeping or at work. That You know, it's an incredible amount. So, you know, limit yourself to an hour a day and,
2: you know, do something else more constructive. Meet with friends. I read an article about four years ago that talked about television watching and the development of Alzheimer's disease. Ooh. And if you watch more than four hours of television per night, you're more apt to develop Alzheimer's disease in the future.
1: Wow. Do you remember the where that was published?
2: I do not. Oh, that'd be, that'd I think be... I'm in trouble.
0: I watched an awful lot of cartoons growing up. <laughs>
1: Well, hopefully you can undo some of that. You know, they say that doing things like learning languages and things like that can help you, so maybe we can work on it. All right, guys, there's another study then. This one is out from the Barna Group. I'm sure you know that Barna does a lot of studies on religious topics, and this was very interesting. This was about Americans who change faiths. So they looked at 2,000 Americans over the age of 18, and I wish they'd have done younger ones, but as you'll see when we get into the results, But basically, this showed that one quarter of adults have moved from one faith tradition to another. So one quarter, three quarters of people have stayed the same as how they grew up, but one quarter changed Hmm. and went to something else. So pretty interesting. You know, and I guess that you might have guessed that. That seems reasonable. But some of the other things that they discovered make it more interesting. One is that it was more likely to happen if you're a woman, more likely if you're a divorced, more likely if you're a resident of a Western state. And that was kind of interesting to me. More likely if you're an atheist or an agnostic, more likely if you're unchurched, and politically independent also was category. So that's kind of interesting. And then there was the question about which direction did they shift, okay? So they looked at— ex-Christians. The most common type of spiritual shift was actually those who were Christians. So those who described themselves as Christians growing up, and they reported becoming atheist, agnostic, or another faith. And that amounted to an one out of every eight adults, or
0: 12%. Could that also be because m- more people... Are Christians to begin with, though, that that's why that— Atheists have more to pick off? Yeah, I guess you could argue
1: something like that. But regardless, in the other direction, it was 3%. So converts to Christianity who were, as they were growing up, were non-Christians, it's 3%. So Hmm. 3% of adults today say that they were converted from being non-Christian. Then they looked a little bit into— why they changed, the reasons for moving away from Christianity included things such as gaining new knowledge or education. Again, this is self-reporting. Feeling disillusioned with church and religion. Feeling the church is hypocritical. Having negative experiences in churches or being in disagreement with the church on issues, and then they listed several issues where they disagreed. Homosexuality, abortion, or birth control. Then also the feeling that the church was too authoritarian. And then finally, wanting to experience other religions was a reason for people. So those are all the lists of reasons people gave of why they had changed their faith. Then in the direction of shifting towards Christianity, the reasons they gave were going through difficult life events such as divorce, a health crisis, or the death of a loved one. Okay, So when people are in trouble, they turn to Christianity. Also getting older. That was a reason that was given. So getting older and decided to become a Christian. Seeing life differently, wanting to connect with a church, wanting to grow spiritually, discovering Christ. There's a good reason for becoming a Christian, those Mm -hmm. who, who had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And also finally wanting to know what was in the Bible. So that led them to becoming Christians. Pretty interesting, all the reasons that people give. It looks like we're being outnumbered, at least for this period of time. And because they looked at all adults, you think, well, gee, this is kind of a generational thing that they're looking at. This might cover, you know, the past 80 years. But it turns out that's not true because the median age is 22 for this. Now, remember that they only looked at age 18 and above, yet the median time for conversion was 22. So this is very interesting. It happens when you're really young, and in fact, only 5% of people became Christians after the age of 40.
2: So that's why I say they should have looked at people less than 18 years old. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. I'm Kirk Hastings. And I'm Keith Kendricks. Keith, I'm curious as to the reasons why the people left. That order that you read, Mm -hmm. uh, why they left Christianity, is the ordering correct as far as the percentage numbers? In other words, gaining new knowledge, like a college grad coming home because he's been exposed to uh, college professors who basically hold a socialist background.
1: Yeah, there wasn't anything to indicate if that's how they had listed the reasons given, but it seems logical that that could be true. We'd have to pull the data out of the study itself and take a look at that. But yeah, I suspect that that probably is true. So the reason
2: listed first was probably
1: the most given. Mm. So that's that study. So it sounds like we've got a lot of work to do.
2: Yeah. I noticed that the net uh, was about 9% loss, 12% leave, 3% come back. So the net is 9%.
1: Yep. Or you could say four times more in the other direction. Mm. Yeah. So we definitely have our work cut out for us. Let's see. The last thing was a kind of an interesting note. This was emailed to me, and I don't have—I did not write down who sent me this email, but it's about a professor who resigned from the American Physical Society over the man-made global warming issue. Well, why are we talking about man-made global warming? What's that got to do with Evidences for Faith? Well, it has to do with the whole idea of how science can become corrupted, and science— quote-unquote, supposed to be the depository of all knowledge, actually does get corrupted from time to time, and it does follow irrational and unscientific areas. And can and, be
2: used for political purposes. Yes. Exactly right. And the new religion is environmentalism, isn't it? Uh, as far as I can tell. So this has everything to do with what we talk about. Animals and nature are more important
0: than human beings are, in other words.
1: So <laughs> it's not only a, a quasi-religion, but it's also a political uh, approach, because right. it appeals to what leftists would desire to be true and show how bad uh, uh, you know, America or other industrialized nations are and how they ought to be stopped. So... Uh, the, the theories, the scientific data that fits into that theory, you know, is questionable. And we've been over, I mean, we've talked about this in past shows, uh, the real evidence about why temperatures rise and fall on the Earth. And it's not only has the theory been confirmed with, you know, scientific argumentation, but it's also been confirmed with experiments. So they've actually looked at the study, not not models, you know, the man-made global warming is, made, and a lot of the evidence comes from computer models, which, you know, we all know, garbage in, garbage out with computer models. But This is actual evidence in the environment, actual experiments that have been done with uh, the environment and in the laboratory, and not computer
0: modeling. Actual
1: evidence shows...
0: Not theoretical, but actual. Actual hard
1: evidence that shows that the uh, rise and fall of the Earth's temperature has to do with its albedo, its cloud formation, and cosmic radiation coming from the sun. Hmm. We've been into the details,
2: but... And sunspots.
1: But... Yes, because sunspots indicate a higher output from solar radiation, Mm -hmm. and that leads to higher levels of cloud formation. And of
2: course, there's cyclical variation in the number of sunspots. Uh, What is it, every 12 to 13 years or so, there's this cycle
1: That's right, and that's why they're having so much cold weather right now, because the sunspot activity predicted that there would be cold weather. But the scientists who didn't believe that it was because of solar output, they thought it was man-made, believed that it would just continue to get warmer and warmer. Well, it's been 12 years, people, since the Earth reached its peak temperature And the temperature has been declining, which means that about now, since we're at the end of the cycle, things are going to start getting warmer again. Um, Then they'll all be back on. Oh, see, we were right. Yeah, well, what happened during the 12 years you were wrong? You
2: know, Keith, right. I was I was watching the, uh, the re- not the replay, but the uh, actual video of the Metrodome collapsing under the snowfall yeah. recently in Minnesota. Right. And one of the guys I was watching with goes, oh, more evidence for global warming. Yeah, there you go. That's right. It's so cool. I find it interesting that when I
0: was growing up, I remember a lot of people talking about, oh, we're coming into a new ice age. Yeah, and, that's and, right. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. that long ago. that was it, back that in was, the 70s, yeah. That was a hot, you know, relatively speaking, a hot topic.
1: And that's another example of the corruption of science, because back then there wasn't evidence for that either. Right. But it was the anti-industrialists who wanted to create a scare so that they could put legislation through that would try to tax industry and put the kibosh on gross domestic product growth. And sell more heaters. <laughs> So, so Keith, tell me, why did this physicist leave the society? Okay, well, here's what he said. He wrote this letter, and I think it's worth reading a couple of paragraphs from it. Now, remember, this guy's name is Harold Lewis. He's Emeritus Professor of Physics, University of California, Santa Barbara. Here's one paragraph from his letter. He says, It is, of course, the global warming scam, with the literally trillions of dollars driving it, that has corrupted so many scientists and has carried the American physical society before it like a rogue wave. It is the greatest and most successful pseudoscientific fraud I have seen in my long life as a physicist, Anyone who has the faintest doubt that this is so should force himself to read the Climate Gate documents which lay it bare. Medford's book organizes the facts very well. I don't believe that any real physicist, nay, scientist, can read that stuff without revulsion. I would almost make that revulsion a definition of the word scientist. So in other words, if you're not revulsed by it, then you're not a real scientist. You ought to think that science should be objective and look at the facts. And if you did look at the facts, you would not believe that man-made global warming was true. Then there's another paragraph he says, I do feel the need to add one note, and this is conjecture since it always— it's always risky to discuss other people's motives. This scheming at APS headquarters is so bizarre that there cannot be a simple explanation for it. Some have held that the physicists of today are not as smart as they used to be, but I don't think that this is an issue. I think it is the money. Exactly what Eisenhower warned about a half century ago, there are indeed trillions of dollars involved to say nothing of the fame and glory and frequent trips to exotic islands, like Cancun maybe, <laughs> right? uh, that go with being a member of the club. Your own physics department, of which you are chairman, would lose millions a year if the global warming bubble burst. When Penn State absolved Mike Mann of wrongdoing and the University of East Anglia did the same with Phil Jones, they cannot have been unaware of the financial penalty for doing otherwise. As the old saying goes, you don't have to be a weatherman to know which way the wind is blowing. Since I am no philosopher, I am not going to explore it. just which point enlightened
2: self-interest crosses into, the, into corruption. So anyway, now we, we have the, uh, the legislation with, with cap and trade and, and carbon footprints and all the other things that go into it, and there's a, uh, a reason uh, behind all of this, isn't there? It looks like there's a, um, uh, more of a, a, a global scheme than anything else. Well, that's
0: where, like you said, that's where the money is. Mm. This whole thing seems to be driven in the end by money, which what isn't today almost. Mm. And you could even uh, argue with the... uh, a lot of the debate between evolutionism and creationism is also driven by a lot of the same factors that he was talking about.
1: Well, and that it's time to get into the debate that we had last week. So let's see if that is a factor. What do you think? You think that there was some corrupt science being discussed last week, Some science that maybe atheists uh, want to put forth as if it's true, like mm. evolution maybe? Oh, absolutely.
2: And, and the problem is, is that our universities are, are spoon-feeding our young kids the um, false doctrines that are being promoted and taught as science when, in fact, it's pseudoscience. It's almost like the the uh, something from nothing that we talked about at the top of the show. Right.
1: Well, you, for those who weren't with us last week, we had Layton and Chuck on. Let's use their first names. They held that they were atheists. They were former Mormons who had become atheists, and they have a podcast now because they wanted to, quote, evangelize atheism. Well, gee, do you think that there might be some other scientists who want to do the same thing? Maybe biologists and others who want to evangelize atheism? Uh, so maybe some of the stuff that's coming out of their labs or in their journal articles is really not all that supportive of evolution, but they want you to think it is.
0: Well, you have to admit that most of the money is in studying evolutionism in one form or another i mean you know this is a big business today that's right you're not going to
1: make money uh doing research on creationism
0: no if somebody comes out and says you know god created the heavens and the earth it's like okay well how can we put make money or put money into that and you know study that or whatever there's no money in that right
1: so now, did you notice that they didn't have—we established that they had no positive evidence uh, that there is no God. They didn't have any evidence that atheism was true. Their only approach was to uh, knock down the evidences that support the idea that God does exist. So the arguments and the evidence that God exists, they're all about knocking that down. Although I did, we did finally pin them down to the argument from pain. So the argument of evil and suffering. So that was the only and, thing.
0: And that, that, is they, a, that is kind of a legitimate question that a lot of people wonder. You know How do, how do we reconcile this, this uh, concept of a perfectly good God and then all of this evil and suffering and garbage that's happening in the world all around us? If, if you're just kind of looking at that argument on the surface, it sounds like a really good argument for the fact that there can't be a good God. Right. But when you really get into how the Bible deals with that issue, and it's, it's not a simple issue, let's face it. And well, especially if you're going through something, it's not simple at all.
1: Let's jump to that part of the, the debate uh, that was towards, I guess, past halfway in the debate. Uh, they brought up the idea about positive evidence and that evil, that, quote, God is on the hook for evil, right? And talking about natural evil, okay? So what do you think? Is God on the hook because there are such things as earthquakes and tornadoes? Well the
0: first thing that, that the first question that brings to my mind is how do you define evil? If you start from the basis that God does not exist, then you have to give me a standard for how you're defining evil. Like, as Christians, we define evil in a certain way because, okay, the Bible says this is right and this is wrong. Right. If you're coming from an atheistic viewpoint, I need you to tell me right off the bat, how do you define evil so that we can determine, you know, why does it exist or not? Right, exactly. In fact,
1: you can turn that around on them and, and say that because you are able to recognize the difference between good and evil, that in itself is an evidence that God exists. So, that there's a
0: standard somewhere that you're referring to in order to be able to define evil. That's right. To me, if, if you're an atheist, it, it should simply be a question of what is and what isn't. There isn't a right or a wrong or a good and an evil. There just is and there isn't. Right. But, so given—all right, so that's that's one answer. Um, given
1: that there is evil, though, that there are things like earthquakes and tornadoes
2: and things, is that God's fault? Well, well, if you look at the, the biblical manifestation of what we're talking about here, uh, God did create a perfect world. Right. But then some some choices were made, and in our own concept in, in uh, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, mm. God then allowed a fallen world to occur because bad choices were made by the first inhabitants right. and their children.
1: So you think that had the resulted in changes in the physical world.
2: Absolutely. Okay. And also yes. in the uh, introduction of physical death as right. well as pain. Right. Okay. So God allowed those things to happen because choices were made. Okay. So there's a
1: second answer and then I think a third answer that's often overlooked is that if God is on the hook for pain and suffering of you know newborn babies who die of cancer or a tornado that rips through and knocks a building over and kills a, a child or something, God is also capable of restoring any damage that happened to innocent people. So for one thing, you have to be able to accuse that the God of being unfair. Well, since God is the author of life and he gives life to people whom he chooses, if I give you, Mike a hundred dollars okay and i give josh ten dollars is that unfair because i gave him ten none of it's your money it's my money right so god gives life if he gives a hundred years of life to one person and he gives 10 minutes of life to another is that unfair no god gi- it, it can't be it's the 10 minutes is a gift from god the fact that you died 10 minutes after birth is not a crime against that that you can hold against God. God gave that person ten minutes of life, which right. is more than they had before.
0: Right. So technically, let's, let's, it's impossible for God to commit murder because if you define murder as the unjust taking of a life, yeah, correct, then you can't accuse the one who gave the life to begin with of being unjust if he decides to take it back again. Exactly. It's, right. it's his choice to either give it or take it. Right. It's not a, a matter of just or unjust.
1: And then further, let's say that the person suffered, though, let's say that they were in torment for years. What if you are a God who can restore that person, who can make that person not even remember any suffering and, in fact, reward them greatly because they did suffer?
0: Which the Bible promises God is going to do.
1: Exactly right. So, so again, there, you still can't uh, accuse God of evil. It just doesn't work. So, but that was their only positive evidence. Other than that, they said that uh, they do not claim to believe that God does not exist. They claim that it's unproven, and they said, I don't know. I don't know if God exists. Well, gee, if you don't know something, why are you pushing it so hard? You know, why do you have your own podcast and you're out there trying to convince other people?
2: Well, I think they actually said it, Keith, uh, at the early early part of the show, when we asked them why it was that they left Mormonism. And it's because they grew up in the Mormon faith. They were educated at Mormon institutions, University of Utah as well as Brigham Young. And they found out through research of their own that a lot of the things that they were taught were actually false. And since Mormonism was the, quote, true religion— and they were spoon-fed a lot of false things, the golden tablets, and so forth. Uh, they left that faith because if if their own true true religion was incorrect, then all religions are incorrect. Right.
1: That's right. So that we did get them to admit that we essentially showed that they threw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. They are now skeptical of all religious claims, mm-hmm. uh, as if you know all religious claims are equivalent. So that was I, I think that was good a good point to make. So what do you think about when they we were discussing about the mirror image part of how we are similar to them, kind of matter matter? and they brought up the, the idea of the... evil Star Trek universe. Yeah, what do you, what do you think <laughs> about that? And they, they, they claimed that we are the ones with the goatees, although uh, I thought it was good that uh, Leighton said, you know, uh, he was wondering who determines who's the light side and who's the
2: dark side. Well, I think Scripture clearly states that we are the light bearers and the image bearers of Christ, so...
0: Right, it's it's hard to when you think about things like the Sermon on the Mount and some of the things that Jesus said and did. It's hard to conceive of labeling those things as the evil side of a belief system. Right, it's kind of interesting.
1: You you know, uh, give yourself the example. Love your enemies. How is that evil? Right. Right, exactly. Give yourself the example of you're, you're going down a dark alley and you see you're, behind you is a group of four large men following you. Now, there are only two things you know. In one case, you know they're theists. And in the second case, you know they're atheists. Which group are you more afraid of? Just that that might help you to figure out who's got the dark goatee beards
0: yeah. or not. The Marxists.
2: I'm afraid of the Marxists.
0: <laughs> and and I have to say, uh, another interesting aspect of that argument is in the Star Trek episode they're referring to, the quote-unquote evil Spock with the goatee. By the end of the episode, he starts coming to the side of the other, the, the good people. The light side. Star Trek people, because he starts to reason everything out by logic, and he realizes, gee, these people have something here. Ah. Maybe we're wrong. Ah, good, interesting.
1: I should have pulled that up and seen if we could get some sound clips out of that. That would have been cool, having Spock, the, the goatee Spock, (laughs) <laughs> so, but what else? What if they say, oh, well, you know, we think that the theists are the evil people because look at uh, look at the Inquisition, look at the
0: Crusades. Uh, you know, uh, everything we know about religious people, they're evil. Well, unfortunately, as, as Christians, that's the hard thing for us to defend is when they start bringing up these historical examples of the quote-unquote church persecuting people— Uh, What they're saying, as far as they're saying it, is true. There has been a lot of persecution by church groups and organizations. But what we really have to focus on, I think, is the problem with that reasoning is that God and the earthly church made up of fallen people are not the same thing. Right. You can accuse the church of doing all kinds of wrong things and be absolutely right in what you're saying, and we can agree perfectly the Inquisition was wrong, you know, mm-hmm. all these things were wrong. But on the other hand, they weren't following the teachings of Christ when they were doing these things. So right. they really, that's not really an argument against historic Christianity, it's an
2: argument against people not Following it the way they should, right? And the other, the other thing that we have to bring up is that with with respect to the Crusades, Crusades were actually uh, brought upon the Moorish influence and the Moorish invasion of Europe. The Moors were the Islamic uh, component Mm -hmm. um, that invaded Europe, and the thrust was to push them back, right? And to take the Crusades were defensive, Holy Land, exactly. They were defensive in nature.
1: So how does that compare against uh, what can be said about atheism? Is atheism, is that where all the good guys are? Are they the atheists, the ones who build the hospitals and the universities and stuff? Or are they more likely to be uh, the agents of death?
0: You could probably find individual examples of atheists who have done things like that. But if you're speaking overall or generally, I I really don't think the atheists have a case there. I think the... The church people are the ones that are generally responsible for things such as, um, you know, the Salvation Army mm. or you know, uh, or food kitchens yeah. or yeah, or things right. that take Hospitals. care of other people that you're not necessarily getting anything out of it yourself personally.
2: And I and I think that if you look at the total estimated numbers of, of deaths or carnage or whatever you want to call it. Uh, in the last century alone, I think that we've we've talked about this on previous shows. I think there's 20 million casualties of atheistic regimes that happened in the last century alone. Well, you're way under. You're way under. What's the number? The number is 170 million
1: deaths caused by 52 atheists. Well, so that's the most detailed report. And other reports by sociologists and historians vary, for the 20th century, anywhere between 100 million to 300 million, depending on who you listen to. Deaths by secular governments, uh, atheistic
0: regimes. So, Communist governments. Right.
1: Yeah, so if you really want to know who's got the goatees, um, just look at who's got the blood-splattered faces, too, and blood-splattered hands. mm one of the things that we got to them to admit also which i think was uh, uh, important that might have slipped by people is we got
2: them to admit that they believe that there is no free will okay well that's interesting because they had the free will to uh, walk away from their faith And to become atheists. Yes,
1: they did. And they also had the free will to come on our show and to uh, not use any of the language that they typically do on their own podcast, uh, not to get
0: angry, not to try to ridicule. Uh, And we do have to credit them for that. Yeah, absolutely. I thought they did an excellent job there.
1: Yep. I thought, uh, which shows that they have free will. But, of course, they don't. They chose to behave themselves. They they did. (laughs) According to their philosophical view of naturalism there is nobody there there's nobody in that brain to control them it's only everything they do is the result only and merely of chemical and electrical activity of the brain so So isn't that
0: really kind of saying that we we are must only be driven by instinct just like animals are and there's no difference
2: Well, i think that's a frontal lobe issue i'm gonna have to bring that up at our next debate because the frontal lobe inhibition of Poor behavior, aberrant behavior, is what controls our activity in public. Really, yep. You know,
1: yep. Then, uh, Mike, you brought up about how do you get something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. So, which was a very good point. You were starting to get us onto the train of thought that we had originally we'd agreed with them ahead of time to talk about the arguments for for and against the existence of God. And the answer from Chuck was that you can get something. If it comes, what do you said? Do you remember him saying, out of a larger cosmos, right? He kept saying, and he referred to the work of uh, Hawking, and he said he had to depend on Hawking's work that showed that uh, fluctuations in gravity uh, can cause a uh, universe to birth. But then again, he said, out of a larger cosmos. Right. So, what's so he where did that about? come from? Yeah, he's talking about the multiverse theory, right? Mm-hmm. right? So, so this
2: is an attempt to push things back. And, and, the, and the problem that I have when you define gravity, gravitational forces, gravitational pull, it has to do with mass of bodies, whether it's a heavenly body, a universe, or whatever. And um, so there had to have been a heavenly body created to have exert a gravitational force.
1: Well, I guess what they're saying is that there was a prior universe. That's what they're saying. So okay. this prior universe.
2: So their special <laughs> pleading then is that. There was something in existence already, which takes us back right. to the original question, where did that come from? Exactly right, yeah. And so, what evidence do we have that
0: there was something before the universe we know now?
1: It, well, you know what? If you can look look at your radios very carefully, because I'm holding up uh, a zero, a big zero. <laughs> there is zero evidence
0: that there are any of these multiverses. Now, even And of course, if- the, the other side of the argument with Hawking is you have to go back to Einstein, who in his research toward the end of his life came to the conclusion that— that the universe had a beginning. Yes. So, so it's, who are you going to listen to, Hawking or Einstein? Well, you don't have to listen to
1: Einstein because it's been further validated since uh, Einstein by the bord guth Vilenkin theorem, which shows that any universe, including a multiverse cosmos, a greater cosmos with multiverses, must have had a beginning. So we read that quote, I think, uh, Kirk you were here with us when we read that quote that this is no longer just an argument it is a mathematical proof that there must be a beginning to any universe no matter whether it's any kind of recycling universe or if it's a multiverse well that you get sounds, back to a creation point
0: that sounds basically like what Einstein came up with he he said that you know he came to the conclusion based on um his ideas, you know, that E E equals MC2 and all that jazz, he, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs of it because I'm not a genius like he was, but he came to the conclusion that all of his mathematical deductions and reasoning and everything else brought him reluctantly to the point where he had to admit the universe or anything that exists must have a starting point. Right. Right. Exactly right.
1: So then they went on, uh, you know, unfortunately we didn't get a chance to debunk that idea of the multiverses because the context was immediately changed, uh, and Chuck went on to talk about the Enlightenment, uh, which he said was where we got the scientific method from. Okay, this is completely wrong. I wish we'd have had time. One of the issues with the, the way the discussion was going was that there were so many things brought up, and we were trying so hard to get back to the original theme, which we had agreed to talk about, that a lot of these things went by the wayside and, and were never responded to, which, um, you know, should uh, that reflects poorly on us. I think we should have been ready to answer these, you know, right off the bat. But at, at least we can answer it now. This is really a bad, bad history. It didn't take more than a couple of minutes of looking up the history of the Enlightenment, the history of the scientific method, to just reaffirm what I had already known at the time is that the Enlightenment happened in the 18th century. You know, you're talking the 1700s. That is after... The scientific method was developed. In fact, there I have a quote from uh, Wikipedia that says that the Enlightenment was directly based on the works of Newton, Descartes, Pascal, and Leibniz. Anybody like to tell me who these gentlemen were? Newton. Descartes, Pascal, and Leibniz. They were all theists, I believe. They were, exactly. They were not only theists, they were devout Christians. They had, in fact, I think all four of them had written works on apologetics. And weren't they, they all-, all written defenses of Christianity? They were all lived during the uh, 1600s. That's not even to mention Bacon, who was a devout Christian who developed the scientific method himself. So all of these were creationist scientists. They're the ones who developed the scientific method, and this was before the Enlightenment.
0: And they all saw science as a way to think God's thoughts after him. Correct. There's a rational God that created the universe, therefore the universe must be rational, and if we study it, we can learn to understand it. That's the whole basis. Originally for science itself.
1: And another proof of that is if you look at who the founding fathers of each of the categories of science that we have today, virtually all of them were creationist, theist, scientists. So it's not true that he he gave this kind of mythological approach to how science developed. And remember, we got into that discussion about philosophy, and I was talking about how philosophy has really taken a bend since the late uh, 1960s towards theism. And they asked, do you think that's because science has been slapping down every sort of superstition? Right? And then they gave the example of the flood story as being one of the superstitions. Chuck said sci- science's job is to find out what reality is. And then he gave this, this kind of myth that atheists have about how you search for God in the mountains, and then you search for God in the skies, but he's not there. And science explains it, right? And, and he says, once you define God out of space and time, good luck finding him in science. Well, the science he's talking about, he had already predefined as uh, methodological naturalism. So to him, science is finding an explanation which doesn't include God. Right. So of course, a natural uh, explanation. Of course, you're for not everything. gonna you're not gonna find God using science. But he gets it backwards. He thinks that he thinks that science came first. You know, and in reality, the philosophy, the arguments for the existence of God came first. One of the things I was telling Mike when we were driving up here is if Aristotle and Plato had been alive, they would have been on our side of the debate. They would have been here in the studio with us, not on the other side with them. They were very much argued the this- suferously against uh, atheism, relativism, uh, skepticism, mm-hmm. uh, all those isms. And today, I I brought in a couple of quotations about the dominance of theism in philosophy today. Many of you may may remember, I don't, I was too little, but some of the older members here might remember April 8th, 1966, when Time magazine had a cover that read, Is God Dead? I remember that. You do? Okay. (laughs) I was 14
0: years old then, I remember that.
1: Well, do you know what happened just a few years later? A new generation of philosophers came up, one of them being Alvin Plantinga, which we highlighted in the debate. And Time had to run a similar cover, except this time it said, Is God Coming Back to Life? Now, that was just a couple of years later. But then finally, in 1980, Time found itself uh, running another major story entitled Modernizing the Case for God. And here's a quote from that article. In a quiet revolution in thought and argument that hardly anybody can have foreseen only two decades ago, God is making a comeback. Most intriguingly, this is happening not among theologians or ordinary believers, but in the crisp intellectual circles of academic philosophers, where the consensus had long banished the Almighty from fruitful discourse. So that was in the 1980s. Now, listen to this from fall of 2001. This is in published in the Secularist Journal Philo, uh, written by a leading atheist philosopher, and entitled "The Desecularization of Academia That Evolved in Philosophy Departments Since the Late 1960s." Okay, here's what he had to say. This is a quote: "Naturalists." Passively watched as realist versions of theism, most influenced by Plantinga's writings, began to sweep through the philosophical community until today, perhaps one-quarter or one-third of philosophy professors are theists, with most being Orthodox Christians. Theists in other fields tend to compartmentalize their theistic beliefs from their scholarly work, They rarely assume and never argue for theism in their scholarly work. If they did, they would be committing academic suicide, or, more exactly, their articles would quickly be rejected. Gee, does that show a bias? Mm. Uh, He continues, But in philosophy, it became almost overnight. Academically respectable to argue for theism, making philosophy a favored field of entry for the most intelligent and talented theists entering academia today. Then he concluded, God is not dead in academia. He returned to life in the late 1960s and is now alive and well in his last academic stronghold
0: philosophy departments. Isn't that just like God to resurrect himself?
1: (laughs) Exactly.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and the reverse, uh, Keith, unfortunately, sad is true that uh, in the biology departments nationwide, the reverse can be said. If you express any belief whatsoever in a God, it doesn't have to be a denomination, but in God per se, you will be uh, expelled, or worse yet, you won't get grant money, or worse yet, you will not get your tenure. Right.
1: So, but in philosophy, they're open to new ideas, and many people became theists because of the arguments presented. Now, to answer the question well, did they do that because they were getting knocked down in science? Well, the answer is no, because you look back historically, here's a list of the 10 top logicians uh, written in a logic textbook, Socratic Logic, by philosophy professor Peter Kraft of the ten most famous logicians in history five of them christians okay so lots of lots of this has historically been true christian christianity has been a logical uh, philosophically very rigorous religion and we challenge our listeners to open your minds take a look at the rational evidence for the existence of god for the truth of what the bible says And join us again next week when we get more into more evidences for the existence of God. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.